Yes, turn with me over to uh, Romans chapter 6. Uh, we're going to kind of fly through this this morning, but that's okay. We can do that. Uh, I want to pray here for a moment, and I want to prepare our hearts as we dive into the scriptures and we uh, we engage and participate in the ministry of the word this morning as we hear the word of God, the word of the living God. Um, and by the way, too, Chris, I... I <laughs> I shared that text with the ministry leaders yesterday, that exact text you just, you just shared um, in First Timothy chapter 4, so um, pretty awesome. So, Father, we just thank you, God, for your word. Um, we thank you, Lord God, that uh, you have, in Psalm 138, you say that you have, you have exalted your word even above your name. <clears throat> in that your name and your word, God, you have declared to be synonymous. And so when we come, Lord, before you this morning, God, and we, dis- and we dive into, we, we, we come into uh, a ministry uh, of your word, and we understand, and we unpackage, and we make sense of what it is that you're saying. Lord, I pray, God, the Holy Spirit would give us understanding, and would bring illumination to the heart God, that it would in some way transform us, that it would in some way convict us, that it would in some way teach us, that it would in some way train us in godliness. Because that is ultimately, Lord, what you desire for all that have put their faith in your Son, is to desire godliness and to live a life of righteousness. And it is your word that works most specifically and thoroughly to that end. And so we ask, God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, that you would grace us with understanding and knowledge and wisdom that only comes from your throne. We love you and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about our union with Christ over the last eight weeks or so. And Tom put it really well. He emphasized the idea of uh, being in union with Christ, that sort of the, uh, the, the Last Supper uh, and, and, the, and communion uh, really has this wonderful way of expressing our union with him as we take of his body and his blood, that there's this sense that uh, in our relationship with Christ that we are bound to him, that we are inextricably linked to him, that we are in a sense fused with Christ, in our relationship with him, in our faith with him. And we talked about this last week, that this is no small matter. This is of no small importance that we are to tend to our union with Christ with all diligence, with a sense of sobriety, with a sense of eagerness, with a sense, I think, of anticipation and expectancy that Christ will continue to bless us and to move us into greater understanding of what it means to be unified with him. First Peter says it like this, chapter 1, 2, through 4, says, I want to turn there, you guys don't have to, but in First Peter, he talks about this union with him being of no small importance. First Peter uh, 1 
2 through 4 says this. Let me see here. Actually, is it 2 Peter? Sorry, sorry, sorry. 2 through 4, sorry. It says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and how is this divine power understood and expressed that leads to life and godliness? He says it right in the next verse. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own excellence and glory, by which he has granted to us his precious promises, and, very, sorry, granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through those things, you may become partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of a divine nature in our union with Christ this morning. This comes by way of his very great and precious promises. And we understand these through the knowledge of who he is. And all of this leads to life and godliness. How is it that we understand his great and precious, precious promises? It is through his word. How is it that we understand that we have become the divine partakers of who he is? It is through his word. How is it that we understand we are saved? How is it that we understand we are regenerated? How is it that we understand we are sanctified and glorified and all of the special promises and wonderful blessings that we have in Christ is through God's word. So it is so important. It carries with it sort of this divine indwelling, our union with Christ. It is an indestructible bond. It's a binding that is infinitely durable. It stands the test of time. It's stout in its permanency. It's everlasting in its vocation of transformation. It works for transformation. And it is durable. And it is uh, everlasting. That it, it proceeds... It, 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 uh, so what I'm looking for. It kind of holds itself up through the seasons of life. That when the seasons of life and circumstances are testing, the, our union with Christ is everlasting and infinite and indestructible. So it is of great consequence for the man or the woman to know and cherish and adore their union with Christ. It is through the grace of God that he has afforded us to understand this through the knowledge of who he is. And to this point, if we are indeed bound to Christ, this morning we're going to talk about us being surely convinced that we are dead to sin. If we are bound to Christ. The man or woman who is in union with Christ, who's been unified with him, who shares a sense of connection and a spiritual linking and fusion with Christ is a man or a woman who has been declared dead to sin. This new reality is by the vocation, the working of grace, abundantly dispensed to us. It's given to us through the mercy of God. We are dead to sin because we are in union with Christ. We are dead to sin because we love Christ. We are dead to sin because we live to God. We live to God. So this morning, we're going to cover our series essential once again. 
to remind you just of what it is that we are trying to accomplish in this series, and that is this, to recover and recapture a biblical worldview. What does the scripture say about our identity? What does it say concerning self-identification? What does it say we are, we are searching for identity in Christ? How? By looking beyond ourselves and looking towards the sweeping and the dynamic nature of Christ's work, his effectual work that accomplishes our union with him. That is essentially what we are doing in this series and this morning. Christ has done every necessary thing to enjoy union with him. That should take a lot of pressure off of you this morning. As I say every week, Christ has done every necessary thing to enjoy union with him. It is not of our own doing or of our own work, but Christ has done it all. And he takes credit for it all. It is in Christ where every spiritual pursuit comes to an end. Like I said, the search party is over. The search party has been disbanded. And the quest for spiritual significance has reached its destination in Christ. You no longer have to search. You no longer have to look for spiritual significance. You no longer have to ask God for more. God has given you all things in Christ, as we read in 2 Peter, that pertain to life and godliness. And now he requires simply your obedience to the process of your transformation. There is rest from striving. There is peace in the abandoning of spiritual performance. There is joy in the cross and in all that it has provided. So let me ask you a question this morning as we talk about this idea of being dead to sin. I wanted to throw this out there for you for a moment. What are some of the commitments and obligations that you have in your life right now that are significant ones, important ones? Just raise your hand. Important obligations or commitments that you have in your life that you have to tend to every single day. So Brian, yeah? Dog, okay. Caring for your dogs, right? Okay. Taking care of your mom, yep. Patty, yeah? That must get awfully expensive around this time of year, eh? <laughs> Brenda, yeah. <laughs> Commitments and obligations that you can identify in your life that are ones you cannot abandon or... Yeah, damn. Yeah, commitment to work, right? Yeah, so you can afford just the needs and necessities of life. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Todd, yeah.
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah, get all spiritual on us. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, Taj is just at another level, you know what I mean? I hope to get there someday. I just kidding. I gotta harass you now because they all voted for Chase Elliott to win this race, so. <clears throat> Alright, let's go. One more, one more. Anybody else? Chris, yeah. Yeah. So your own commitment obligation to your health. To your health. Yeah. To a certain degree, we all, right, uh, in life, we have, we, we to, to varying degrees, right, we all are committed in some sense, you know, obligations, you know, some, maybe more than others, me, I'm probably, like, to our health, right? And we, we take care of that, we watch out for that, we, we tend to that, which is a good thing. God has given us this physical body, and he has given us the, you know, the, the responsibility to tend to it and to be committed to it and to um, be responsible for it, right? So, yeah, so I say that because I'm going to bring that theme up in a moment with regards to the topic that we are discussing this morning. But I want you to turn to um, Romans chapter 6. Uh, verses uh, six, uh, verse five this morning. We're continuing uh, kind of in this sort of uh, this dive into Romans six, and we're kind of following uh, Paul's logic here with regards to our union with Christ. And uh, just for context purposes, Paul is coming off of the dialogue that we talked about a couple weeks ago about our union with Adam. And now he transitions into this idea of being dead to sin uh, because we are no longer in union with Adam. We are now in union with Christ. And so the theological understanding and implications that Paul was talking about in Romans 5 is that when everyone's born, they're born into a family. They're born into a situation. They're born into a condition. And that condition, uh, for, the, for every person, that condition, that spiritual condition, is found in Adam. By, by Adam's fall, by Adam's rebellion, by Adam's sin, we all are born into that condition, into that reality as, 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 as you know, men and women, as children. And so Christ has come, Paul makes the argument in Romans 5, but Christ has come to be the last Adam and to do what Adam could never do. Christ comes and he's perfect in his life. Christ come and upholds the law perfectly in his life so that Christ comes and obeys God perfectly where no one else can. And it is only by this work of Christ and him going to the cross and him dying and atoning for our sin that we can find freedom and understanding and liberty in Christ. That is the effectual work of his of his, um, of his vocation and his work on the cross. It is ideally and, and most you know, specifically for that purpose to understand what he has done on our behalf. And so when we come into Romans 6, we see Paul continuing this narrative about sin. So why is it that we are dead to sin? Because we are no longer in union with Adam and what we were born in. We are now in union with Christ. We are now fused with Christ. We are linked with Christ. We are bound to Christ and no longer Adam. So this is where we pick it up in verse 
5. He says this, For if we have been united with him, being Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Amen to that this morning. We know that our old self or our old man or our old nature was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So we talk about that and break that down for a moment this morning. I think this is really critical. We had a conversation about this very topic ahead of this study in our life group last week. We shared and talked about some things that I felt for people were really liberating for them, and I want to share them with you this morning because I think oftentimes because the uh, idea and the concept of sin is so, um, it's just neglected in the church, and I'll talk about this you know, in a little bit more detail in a moment, that we assume that everyone doesn't and nor should we. And with that comes guilt. Right? So the guilt that Christ paid for and atoned for now creeps back in because the church is hesitant to talk about this issue. Now everyone believes that no one else does it. Now we're all kind of like secretly like living these lives going, hey man, I still, you know, and, but I don't think that person does or I don't think the pastor does because he never talks about it and we never really talk about it in church. And so man, if like we don't really talk about this and then maybe no one's doing it and no one's engaging in it and maybe I'm the only one on an island that kind of lives this way and has these weird hangups and has these things that I'm still dealing with and so maybe I just can't actually express that to anyone because I don't want to out myself, and I don't want to make myself feel like I'm less spiritual than everybody else, so you know, I'm just going to zip the lip, and I'm not going to mention my life, my lifestyle, what I struggle with, and so I'm just going to live in this place of guilt and condemnation, because we just don't want to talk about it. Well, we're not going to do that here. <laughs> we're not going to do that here, because if the Bible talks about it, and, and let's just be clear here, the Bible makes a big deal about this then we should talk about it. We should talk about it. Not as a means for condemnation, not as a means to make you feel less than or a second-class Christian, because it's the reality of the Christian life. It is. So, let's talk about it. So that first part. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. So as we consider our union with Christ, it's important to remind ourselves the means by which this has occurred. So the first part is the means of our union. What is the means of our union? Or in other words, how does our union take place? Paul says this, for we have been united with Christ. And this idea of being united with Christ takes on a little bit of a different understanding than what we would normally think about being united when we think of being in unity with Christ, we think, right, about the bonding, about the binding, about the fusion, right, about the linking, right? But Paul uses a different word here when he talks about being united with Christ. He uses a word, he uses a word here that talks more about being planted together, about growing together, about being closely entwined with Christ. 
I, I, I can't often think about the imagery of the, of the wheat and the, and the tares in the parable, right? It's not, it's not the same application. But I, that's how I kind of think about it. It's like we're growing with him. Not that Christ needs to grow, but he's the means of our growth, right? So when we are united with Christ, we are planted with him. We are planted in the, in the root, in the soil of his life, which bears much fruit. So when we're united with Christ, Paul is talking in these terms, being united with him is essentially to be planted with him so that we can grow with him. And he is the means for our spiritual growth. He says, you are united with him. How are we united with Christ? In his death. So we are united not through life, but through death, which produces life. So we are united in him through death. We talked about this last week and being crucified, right? Being crucified in Christ. If we are not crucified in Christ, then the means by which everything we have in our union is not available. So we are united through death. And because we are united through death, we will experience a resurrection, a resurrected life. We have that now in part. We will experience in its fullness when he returns. But to be bound with Christ is not simply, and this is what Paul, I think, is getting at here. To be bound with Christ is not simply to participate in a static reality. Okay? So it's not like we come to faith in Christ and we're good. But we come to faith in Christ as a starting point for our growth, for our maturity. Right? We, we are nourished by the word of God to grow up into the full measure and stature of Christ. You know, we're, we're, we're in union with him and we pray with him and we spend time with him and we, we read his word and we're immersed in the truth of God and we're around the people of God so that we can grow in Christ. That is why the church is so critical. That's why online church just does not work. So we are to grow. It is not a static reality, but to be unified with him is to share in his life. And through his life-giving nutrients, we grow in him. And look what else Paul says. He talks about the means of our union is not just that, but it is death. How are we found in Christ and unified? Through his death. The instrument of death accomplishes our union. And then secondly, his resurrection. To experience union with Christ through his death is to also experience a resurrection with union in Christ. As his death is our death. His death is ours now. So that's the means by which our union comes to life. Then Paul transitions to this other part, this other topic. He says, what are the results of this? So given the fact that we are in union with Christ because of the death of Christ, what does this result in? What is it that we see as a product of our union? Well, he says it here in verse 6. We know that, if you look at the words, he says, for if we have been united with him, right? We know that our old self was crucified. 
So in other words, the, cruci the crucifying of our old self is in part the product of our union with him. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So our old life with him is crucified so that our body of sin may be brought to nothing. What does Paul mean by this? Seems like weird language going on here. First, let's deal with the old self. Our old self is crucified with him. It is the old man that no longer lives as it participates in the same death to sin that Christ did. The old man no longer lives because we have died to sin in Christ because Christ has died to it by taking it upon himself so that it has no rule over us anymore. It has no dominion over us anymore. It no longer leads us around by the nose anymore. We're no longer attending to it, giving attention to it, because Christ has died for it. We'll talk about that in a second. But then he says, not only that, what is it that we have died to? We have been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is Paul saying here? He's talking about the physical body. He says in Romans chapter 7, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Right? The idea is that as, 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 um, as men and women who uh, have been born into Adam, we are rescued and brought into union with Christ. But there is this residue, right, of our old nature that our bodies have not been fully delivered and resurrected that will come when he comes again. And so we're still living in bodies that will die. And if you don't die, let me know how it is that you have accomplished that. But the inevitable fact of everyone sitting in this room is that we will die. Why? Because of the effects of sin. So Paul says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? How is it that I'm delivered from this body of sin? It's in Christ that delivers me. Who will do this? It is him. Paul essentially is saying that the permeating effects of sin are not just spiritual. You know, they are evident in our whole being. That when we sin, we sin with our body. We sin with our actions. We sin with our words. And so there's this wholeness that Paul is trying to get to and make us understand about the permeating effects of sin that Christ has delivered us from. But it is essentially also in the body, not just in the mind and our thoughts, but in our whole being. And so there's really no escape for us outside of Christ. That's what Paul is essentially saying here. You know, if you think any part of your life can in any way escape this reality, you're wrong. That's why you need him. For the new man who has been crucified, their very body, my body, with its appetites and passions to serve myself, are brought to the place of very little influence in Christ. The things that I once loved to do, I do not love to do them anymore. You know, when I first got saved, I was thinking about this the other day. We were talking about this in our, in our life group. 
It's pretty amazing because when I first got saved, when I first came into an understanding of Christ and I received Christ and I believed into Christ, you know, I, I was very, I was not very, um, I was not very uh, familiar with the Word of God. You know, I, I couldn't go, I couldn't go to the Word of God and say, "Okay, I've got a new life now." Now Paul tells me I should, you know, um, you know, I should abstain from. You know, sexual immorality, and I should uh, abstain, abstain from uh, all of these, you know, things in my life, right? I should uh, abstain from uh, being uh, prideful. I should abstain, you know, from from thinking of myself and being selfish. You know, uh, I mean, I really got to go to the Word and figure out, okay, how am I supposed to live, right? That that wasn't my experience. Now, this is coming from a man who absolutely treasures and cherishes the Word of God, right? But my point is, is that when I got saved, right? When I, when I put my faith in Christ, when I came into union with Christ, there were things that God was bearing witness to me naturally in my life through the Spirit that told me what was good and what wasn't. I had a natural understanding now through the Spirit of righteousness and godliness. I didn't have to go to the Word necessarily to tell me how to live my life once I got saved. Now, let me just say, I'm not, I'm not in any way saying that we should not be in this thing, right? But what I am saying is that there is a natural law in us that God gives every man and woman. And when the Holy Spirit comes and bears witness to that law of righteousness and godliness through faith, it causes us to live differently. And then the word comes and substantiates and testifies to and spurs us on to continue in that lifestyle. That the word of God is the very revelation of God. And it comes and it convicts and it, and it exhorts and it encourages. It does all of those amazing, wonderful things. But what Paul is talking about here, he says, you had appetites, you had passions to serve yourself. But now in Christ, those are gone. Those are gone. The effectual work of the Holy Spirit now is, is palpable to the life of the Christian. And then the word of God comes in and testifies to that truth. And makes real that way of life. And becomes a guide for how we live. He then goes on to say that we are no longer enslaved to sin. This is where I want to park here for a sec. We no longer serve sin as our master. We are no longer controlled by sin or dominated by sin. The continuous desire to feed our simple nature has been smothered. It has been cut off. It has been stripped of its persuasiveness. We had a conversation in our life group, and someone brought this up to me. They said to me and to the group, we had this discussion. They said, you know, I thought for so long that I could not sin when I became a Christian. And if I did, that somehow I had lost my faith. Or I had, you know, I, that what I had received was taken from me. And so we talked about that for a moment. She's like, doesn't this passage say that? Doesn't this passage say that if, if, if sin is in my life, then, uh, then I have not been delivered, that I'm not in union with Christ? Because, because that's what Paul says. He says if you're in union with him, then there's no sin there, right? 
And I said, no, 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 no. I said, that's not true. I said, look at the words. Look at the words Paul uses here in verse 6. What does he say? He says, he says, I was crucified with him, brought to death, and ordered that the body of sin, the sin that raised my body, would be brought to nothing, would have very little influence over my life, so that we would no longer be what? What's the word he uses here? Enslaved. Enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What does this term mean? What does this, what does this make of our understanding of our reality with regards to sin? serve it. We no longer serve it. It is no longer our master. We have been delivered from its lording nature. It no longer sits on the throne of our hearts. It doesn't mean that the presence is not there. It doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity still to do and engage and entertain it. That will always be the case until we are rescued from these bodies. But dear Christian, please, don't think for a moment that because you have to go to God and ask for forgiveness of your sin, that you are somehow not a Christian. That could not be the furthest from the truth. But the Christian no longer is enslaved. Sin is no longer our master. We no longer serve it with our whole heart. In fact, we now hate it. We despise it. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin has been thoroughly crushed because we have been rendered dead to it in our new life with Christ. So here's the reality. I'm going to end here. We are free from the guilt of sin. In our union with Christ, we are free. Sin and what it earns for us is death has been satisfied in Christ as his righteousness justifies us. Our union with Christ frees us not only from our guilt, but our guilty conscience. If you are living a life as a Christian with a guilty conscience over sin, God wants to deliver you from that because Christ died for that. He died for that. We are also freed from the reign of sin. Sin no longer dominates. It no longer wields dominion. We are free to live a new life in Christ as its eternal consequences have been swallowed up in the work of the gospel. John says it like this in 1 John chapter 1. He says this in verse 7 to 10. He says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves that the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at those beautiful promises of God this morning for you who are not perfect. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, the very evidence of a Christian is your recognition of your sin. Let that help you. Let that bring some rest and peace to your life this morning. Because we can all sit here and pretend, and we can all sit in our silos guilty, feeling condemned, or we can all agree with one another in the word of God that this is still a reality in our lives. It is a reality in our lives, but it is not a controlling influence anymore because of what Christ has done. Don't let anyone convince you that you can reach a life or a state of sinless perfection this side of heaven. Don't let anyone convince you of that. There are people out there that teach that. Don't believe them. When you hear someone teaching you that you can be sinlessly perfected, turn the channel, go to another YouTube subscriber, do something different. Do not listen to people who tell you that you can reach sinless perfection because of what Christ has done for you. Because it is completely antithetical and contrary to what the Apostle John says in his epistle. Even though we are not subject to its reign and its bondage, there still remains for every Christian the capacity to engage in it. And that's just the truth. But it forces us, it guides us, it leads us to the cross. And we ask for forgiveness. And we allow God to dispense his grace upon us through his mercy, through our rebellion. Because it still happens. Because we now live to Christ and have died to sin, the new man has no obligation to it. And that's why I talked about this at the beginning. We have no obligation to sin anymore. We have no commitment to it anymore. We have no desire for it anymore. Sin has become a stranger to us, which demands no honor, no delight, and no attention. That is where we are. We have no obligation nor commitment to it. There's an illustration here for a moment, if you allow me. I've been having some conversations with my boys about them growing up and when they leave the house. Because Jackson's 15. And I said, hey, when you're 18 and you got a full-time job, you're out of here. To which he says to me, Dad, that's totally not fair. That's not right. That's not loving. And so we have this ongoing conversation. I say, listen, you and Riley, when you get of age and you got working and you're ready to go and you're making a living, you're getting an apartment. I said, you guys can live together. I said, but you're not going to be in my house. And then I turned to, and then I turned to Grace and I said, Grace, I said, you can live here as long as you want. 
So there's this running conversation with with them, and now they have, now they have this animosity towards them because they're like, Dad, you're gonna kick us out when when we're 18. Oh, we can live on our own, or we got we got money, and we're making we're working, and all this stuff. Like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you guys are out of here. We need your room for the girls, and that's the way it works. But but here's my here's my point this morning. When they do leave, right? They have a sense of obligation to me. They have a sense of responsibility to me. If they're going to live in my house under my roof, they're going to eat the food that I pay for, the food that we go out and earn money to, to get. They're going to enjoy the nice warm room in the middle of the winter, right? They're going to enjoy all the, the goodness of living at home and all of the blessings and all of that. They're, they're living under my obligations. I, I, they are responsible to me. And I have certain expectations of them, and they will serve that obligation and those responsibilities as long as they're in my jurisdiction, under my roof, right? But once they leave, those obligations are, they're lifted. They're no longer relegated and responsible for taking out the trash, doing the recyclables, taking out the, you know, cleaning the dishwasher, doing the dishes, watching this, watching that, the responsibilities, the obligations, the commitments they have once they leave, they don't have those anymore. Why? Because they're not under the same jurisdiction. They're not under the same authority. They're not under my house. They're not under my rules. So it is with every man when they have been brought into a union with Christ. We are no longer under the obligation of sin. We're no longer under its authority. We're no longer under its rule or its dominion because we are under Christ. We are in Christ. We are united with Christ. And the ruling responsibility and obligation is brought to us through the great. And that is the reality of our union with him this morning. We are new. We have been delivered from life or from death to life. We have been given a new name in Revelation, verse 2. We have been given a new song in Psalm 40. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We have been given a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We are in a new family, Galatians 4, 5. But when the fullness of time and of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We have a new mind, Ephesians chapter 4, 20 to 24. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds, and we put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And finally, we've been given a new heart, Ezekiel 11, 17 to 20. God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may what? Walk in my statutes and my rules. We love God and we obey God and we love Christ and we follow him and his commands by the energizing power of the Holy Spirit and with the new heart that has been birthed in us because of our union with Christ. Amen? Let's stand this morning.